More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. You're an inspiration dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Uh, today is May 26th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing— it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Maggie Exton. And I'm Heather Forsyth. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and their personal stories uh, every single week. And if you're a grad student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show and talking about your research and how you came to grad school, you can find out more about all the awesome things going on here at our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And we also have a podcast and Twitter and Facebook pages so you can check out any of those to find out more information. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight we are joined by Václav Kuna from the Department of uh, College of Earth, College of yeah. Earth Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. <laughs> Making troubles to say that. Yeah. I've been around only for five years so I don't really <laughs> remember the name of the college. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so why don't you give us a, like a couple, an intro to what you do here at Oregon State? So uh, I study seismology. So I study earthquake seismology. I say earthquakes, um, and I'm not interested in uh, that much in earthquakes themselves, but I'm interested in how they, um, are distributed in space and time and what they mean for motion of fault. So fault can... Uh, release energy either via earthquakes or via some like a seismic slow motions and I study how these two interact with each other so uh, and earthquakes are uh, good uh, are providing us this information like how uh, uh, fault slips and like how we can actually study the interaction between a seismic motions and seismic motions so yeah can you tell us a little bit more about what so seismic versus aseismic and what that means, and then earthquake, what, what that is, where so, that fits. So seismic motion is the motion that we know better and we know more about. So that's that motion that we are actually afraid of uh, because that's the motion that causes damages all over the world. So when we have a fault, the fault is normally locked, and uh, many of those faults out there, they can accumulate a lot of energy and then release it very fast over seconds or first couple of minutes when it when it comes to very large earthquakes and those motions are very violent and very strong so that's that's what earthquake is it's like a release of accumulated energy on a fault and that's what we call seismic motion and also uh it's kind of a newer thing a couple of decades maybe people started to observe that not all the faults are actually releasing energy via these uh fast motions via these earthquakes or uh, those seismic motions but also they can just like slip 
over a long period of time. Like they are, they are being loaded tectonically uh, on rates um, centimeter, centimeters per year. And they can also release this motion uh, continuously, uh, very slowly. Or they can work in some kind of like uh, in-between regime where they accumulate the energy, but then they don't release it in over seconds, but they release it over hours or uh, weeks. So that's what we call a seismic motion. So th those are the motions that we don't even notice. If like one was occurring right beneath us right now, we wouldn't be able to notice that. But those are those might be important for uh, assessing like how uh, the fault works and like those might be also important for nucleation, uh, those seismic motions, those earthquakes. So we have these two broad categories of motion. So you have like a sli slow sliding of these plates um, and then you have like jumps. How do we measure those measure this happening, I guess? How do we measure like the pressure, how fast it's moving, stuff like that? So the seismic motion we can measure by seismometers. So we um, have some kind of, uh, uh, I mean, seismometer, probably most of the people know how they work. It's uh, in the very simplistic way, it's some kind of a weight on the, uh, on the, straight, uh, on the spring. So it, uh, when actually like a, an earth shakes, the weight stays in inertia and we can measure those uh, motions, those fast motions. So uh, we study those seismic motions of faults uh, primarily using these uh, seismometers and networks of seismometers. So there are like all sorts of networks. There are global networks that uh, capture that like big global earthquakes that occur, but also we can deploy temporary networks of uh, smaller uh, uh, shapes of those, uh, or like put them in networks in around the fall that we are interested in and have like several tens or several hundreds of instruments around the fault. And we can really observe those like very tiny earthquakes that are occurring on the fault. So <clears throat> that's for the seismic motion and for the a seismic motion for the non, non earthquake motion is it's a little bit more challenging, but uh, on land we can use GPS stations. So, uh, those are frequencies or like those motions are so slow that they cannot be captured by seismometers, but uh, they can be captured by geodetically by GPS stations. So primarily that and in the ocean, it's very, very difficult to deploy GPSs. Oh. Uh, or I mean, it's impossible to deploy GPSs as we know them, but like there, there's, there can be like some strain meters, something that measures uh, slow slipping uh, motion of a fault, but it's very challenging to do and we haven't done it on our fault yet. So seismometers measure the velocity of the that that's location of that's moving. Like wherever you deploy it, you have a seismometer and it measures a speed and direction. Yes, okay. yes. Um, they can measure either velocity or acceleration, depends on what kind of uh, instrument it is. But yeah, it 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 captures uh, how uh, the surface where we have the seismometer sitting on how it moves in three components, so how it moves up up, and in two horizontal components, so in velocity. Yeah. Okay. Who puts the seismometers into the ocean and how does that work? So uh, it is particular project that I have been working on. Uh, it was my advisors and a couple of colleagues of his uh, project that is funded by NSF and they got this funding 2009-ish uh, and deployed the seismometers mostly by 
themselves with, of course, a significant help of the crew of uh, the Oceanus and Rebel uh, ships. And uh, there are also like so many volunteers involved, so it's, it, it's taking many people. But it's mostly, yeah, there's like a scientific and technical party involved in the deployment. And the way it works, it's actually quite fun. So <laughs> we have like a ship that is loaded with, uh, I don't know, 30 instruments at once. And we go out there or they went out there and the instruments look like a big yellow meter times meter times meter, uh, three feet times three feet times three feet for Americans, <laughs> uh, <laughs> box, uh, yellow box. And we can lift it up with a crane and drop it over the board of the ship. And uh, we drop it approximately at the place or at the place where we want to have it. So like when it sinks down to the depth of one to five kilometers, wherever, like we drop it. Of course, it drifts a little bit, but the drift is just several hundred meters. So we, we drop it somewhere where we want to have it. And then um, we make like a circle around the station when it sits down and we eco-locate it. So we communicate with the station and we uh, acoustically and we we determine the exact position of the station. And, <clears throat> and then we continue and deploy 30 of them or how many like it's loaded. And the station sits in there for a year and records data. So it has like a memory card in there and battery that is worth like a year. And and then... So you don't know if it's working throughout this whole year. You just, you get them afterwards and you check the memory card and... Yeah, we, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's like high risk. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no way how to... I, I mean, uh, if you had unlimited budget and uh, sometimes people have uh, bigger budgets, for example, on the Juan de Fuca Ridge, there is a uh, axial seamount area. So people have cabled in the data from the oh, OBS wow. station. So that's, but that's much more challenging. And that's for like long-term deployment in the ocean. But for the temporary deployment, it's not really like feasible like to so do that. So like, yeah, you don't know. And it happens also that like you can recover the station after a year and find out that there's no data. No data. That must be sad. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, it didn't happen that much at this project that I'm working on. We okay. are very lucky in terms yeah. of this. Yeah. So someone else put the, got, essentially collected the data that you work with. Have you yes, gathered right. data for other people? Yes. Uh, that's how it works in seismology mostly, it seems to me. It's very, you would have, be, you would have to be very lucky to uh, be come for a PhD and uh, gather your own data and then process them and have a couple of papers from it because it takes a long time to gather the data and do all, mm -hmm. all this stuff. So the data were already correct, collected when I came here to ISU and I have been collecting data for other people that come after me. So we went to uh, Nepal a couple of times or several times after the big earthquake in 2015 uh, and we had like an aftershock, what we called aftershock study. We studied aftershocks of that big earthquake. So we deployed similar earthquakes as we had in the ocean. We deployed on land, which is, in a way, it's easier, but it's like challenges to like driving all over Nepal, where <laughs> there was just like magnitude eight earthquake. So it, right. it was also uh, quite challenging. How and soon after did you go? Uh, we got there about uh, four weeks after the earthquake. Uh -huh. We wanted to go right after, and but because like the, the border was so like. 
it, it was very difficult to get there like yeah. because of like the airport was like really flooded with all the relief stuff and they didn't have time for seismologists which is <laughs> which makes sense makes sense <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and also another project we have a project in Caucasus region right now. So it's uh, where is that? Uh, it's Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Russia. Okay. So that's like a big collaborative project where we work. And cool. Yes. Yeah, and you go. Do you? How do you travel um, in that region? Or in any? Like, do you? You said you drive around in Nepal, but. Um, yeah. So. In Nepal, or both in Caucasus and Nepal, we mostly drove. So when we are when we were deploying those stations, because it's a lot of material for every station, uh, not only the station, not only sensor by itself, but also like a big car battery, solar panels, and everything like that. So you cannot really carry it for like long distances, like we did several times, but we had to like hire some people to carry it, and uh, because it was it's a lot of stuff. So mostly where you can get by pretty solid jeep you can place a station uh and also yeah and then like when we came for servicing the stations after several months it was after monsoon where like there were many landslides on all over the road so we had to walk more so it the driving wasn't really possible then but like you carry just a small backpack of like snacks (laughs) (laughs) um backing up to collecting your data um in the ocean so you're, you can hear the sounds of an earthquake, but there's, I imagine, lots of other sounds happening in the ocean. Do you pick up a lot of other things and do you remove that or how do you sort through that? That's right. There's a lot of sounds all over. So we can like hear ships coming by or we can hear whales mm-hmm. uh, talking to each other. So that's uh, fun. Like mostly it's not a problem for earthquakes. Uh, for, for our processing, it's not a problem because normally those frequencies are... Uh, a little bit higher than what we are targeting. So we are targeting like for small earthquakes, it's somewhere between four and 10, 15 Hertz maximum, more like 10 Hertz. And the deepest voices of whales are about 15 Hertz, 20 Hertz. So, and ships are, yeah, also a little bit higher frequencies, the engines. So, but we hear a lot, like we hear thousands and thousands of hours of of whales uh, all over like migrating either north or south in the in the spring so that's fun to to listen to them so why why do you and these are from pressure gauges which pick up uh, or differential pressure gauges which pick up sound waves because they're pressure waves but uh why why is it important to get that information or i mean is it for sound or is it are you looking for something else in in the pressure readings Actually, the pressure gauge is not that much different from seismometer. Like the principle is different, but it picks up a very similar signal to vertical component of a seismometer. So uh, when you have an earthquake coming from beneath, it of course, it shakes the seismometer. It records on the seismometer, but also the wave converts at the boundary uh, from the solid to water. Like it converts to a sound wave. So the pressure gauge actually picks up the same, the same signal as the seismometer does. So sometimes those are like a little bit more like sharper. Sometimes the quality of the uh, of the uh, pressure gauge is a little bit higher than the seismometer for the first arrival, as we as we call it, like when an earthquake comes for the first time. Uh, so 
Sometimes it's better to do the processing on on some kind of processing on a pressure gauge, but also like the sounds that are coming from the water, like whales or ships and stuff like that, they both come, they are recorded on a pressure gauge, but they are also recorded on the seismometer because it also like shakes the seismometer. So uh, they are they are not that different as it may sound okay. in, in in water environment. Of course, if you had it like sitting on land, like. The pressure gauge would pick up like us talking here, but like it wouldn't. I mean, it would pick up somewhat like an earthquake, but it would have to be, yeah, really high frequency. Yeah. So I think we have a clip of one of the from some of this data. Sound clip. Yes, we do. Can you tell us uh, what we're about to hear? So this is a good one, actually. Okay. Uh, so you should be excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, so this is a section of one uh, seismometer that uh, records talking fin whales. I, I believe that there are two fin whales that are talking to each other, but I'm not a biologist, so don't take me up on that. Okay. And, and then actually, so it goes on for like 20 seconds, and then a, a large earthquake actually occurred in Haidagai in British Columbia. So that's a recording of that. Of noise of that big earthquake so so where and where was this located this pressure gauge that's acting like a microphone uh, so this was one of our stations uh, on the Blanco fracture zone which is just west coast of Oregon uh, or just west coast like some 200 miles west coast of Oregon so uh, yeah so the Heidegger earthquake is coming from about thousand kilometers eyeballing uh, distance and it's filtered to quite high frequencies like such an earthquake wouldn't have uh, audible frequencies, like mostly it would be like lower frequencies that we, we wouldn't be able to hear. But because I was like playing with that to get like both the whales and the earthquake, I filtered it to quite high frequency. And also it's actually sped up 10 times because even uh, the whales are quite low frequencies. Those are like 17, 20 hertz. So what we're going to hear is going to be 10 times as much, like 200 hertz and the earthquake about the same. Okay, let's give it a shot. So that's the whale. So those are the whales, yeah. 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 Cute. Yeah. And man, and this is sped up. Yeah, yeah. And there's the rumbling noise is the earthquake coming up. Must have been so creepy to be the whale at that point. Like, hey <laughs> <laughs> man, what's going on? Can you do anything with uh, this whale data? Uh, people, or people do uh, quite a bit with like a passive monitoring of uh, of uh, of uh, whale uh, sounds. So we can locate them. We can, or they can locate them. They can. Uh, study whale behavior and stuff like that. So that has been done both on like pressure gauges or microphones and also OBS stations. What I got distracted by a couple of months ago, what I've been trying to do is to use those uh, whale sounds for 
some kind of subsurface imaging. So I am using it as a source of mechanical waves that can penetrate deep in the earth and bonds of layers uh, in inside of the earth. And by the time when they bounce off, you can calculate how deep those interfaces are. So I've been trying to do that. I don't know if if it's of any use or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, so you've taken or done deployments um, in the ocean and also on land. Do you have a preference for which one you like? You enjoy more. I mean, it's all valuable data, but what what do you enjoy more? Um, I have gone out on the sea only once, uh, and only for a week. People spent months on the sea, uh, but even that week. It didn't take me long to realize that I'm not that much of an ocean person. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the ocean realized that too. So yeah, I really I really prefer the land. And partly also because normally where we do uh, where we do those like temporary deployments, it's somewhere high up in the mountains, either Caucasus or Himalaya. Or I've cool. been lucky enough to like be in those two regions. Because those are the seismically active regions, so seismology often takes you to places that are very pretty, and so I I I really pref- like prefer the the land, the steep mountains. Yeah, it's gorgeous. What were you? How did you get into seismology? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think through physics. I I kind of liked physics when I was at high school. And and also, like, we had a family friend who was a seismologist, so I talked to him, and it seemed to me that there's, like, a lot of, lot of work to be done. There's still, like, so many, like, especially in terms of, like, both scientifically, of course, but also in terms of uh, seismic hazards, that there is a lot of things that can be improved. Be- because what we could see in Nepal, and, like, we can see over and over in all the areas that are affected by earthquakes, is that there is a lot of relief. Uh, that is coming after a disaster, but it and it of course helped and it's great that like international community gets up and like tries to help as much as possible. But even if like one percent of that money were invested like before that thing happened, it probably would be like even more beneficial for the people. So I think there's still like many areas like I think the U.S. or Japan they are kind of prepared uh, for most of it like there's still like plenty of things to improve but places like nepal or indonesia or like so many other countries like we could see it in haiti like just just comparing like how many people were killed by the tsunami in the indian ocean and then uh comparing to the hoku earthquake like where it was like 30 times less and i'm not saying that those are the same areas but just yeah preparedness yeah. is the key for this and I think there's a lot to be done. So where did you do your undergraduate degree? I am from the Czech Republic originally. So I did my undergrad and master's too in Prague at Charles University. Cool. Yeah. Why? What made you come to OSU? Um, I think I was very lucky. Uh, my, my former advisor knew my current advisor and they kind of talked and my current advisor said, hey, like I have funding for a PhD student. Do you want to apply? And I said, yes. Great. So that's pretty much the story. And I, I have never been in the US before. 
It was like my first time in the US. I had to look up Oregon in a map. <laughs> and so that was funny. It was kind of a coincidence. Yeah. So have you enjoyed Oregon since you've been here? What do you do for fun? I really enjoy Oregon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oregon is good. Um, <laughs> especially the outdoor stuff is really fun in here. So what I did back at home a lot, I, I used to be canoeing. Um, like when I was a teenage, I was like doing competitive like canoeing. And then when I came up here, there was so much of white water. So I, I started to white water kayak. Cool. And, and it's really fun or it has been well, it was fun before I messed up my shoulder. Um, and then other outdoor stuff too, like running is good. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of things. All right. And also, like, actually, the reason why I came in the U.S. I, I was lying a little bit before. <laughs> uh, the reason was because, like, I really wanted to have that, like, pickup truck from 50s, that old one. <laughs> and because those are great. And we don't have the mirror up. Like, you can't find those. <laughs> so that was the first thing when I came here a couple of weeks after I bought uh, an old pickup truck that had pretty much zero value, but I bought it for a thousand bucks. Amazing. From the 50s? No, it was more like early 80s, but okay. still okay. It, still, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Did you fix it up? Uh, I tried to. I mean, it was running for several years. I did a lot of things on that, but then it was just like not, yeah, not really feasible to do that uh, anymore. Sad. But I got another like car without any value, so... <laughs> So that, that <laughs> void has been filled again. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a couple of traditions on inspiration dissemination. Uh, number one is giving a piece of advice to someone who maybe is in a similar position as you were a couple of years ago or uh, leading up into the career you have now um, or to a former self, maybe. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I think that maybe for... PhD, um, my advice would be if if somebody's working on PhD, I think my advice would be to like be curious about stuff because I think that like PhD program gives you a lot of time and a lot of uh, don't tell this to my advisor. Um, You're live on air, (laughs) 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 but it gives you uh, actually quite a bit of time and and space to be curious about not maybe just your like very narrow like scientific field that you are studying but also just be distracted by other like pieces of like that's still related to your science and that's still related to what you do but at the same time like it teaches you a lot to be like, just to think a little bit outside of the box i don't like this cliche but i just said yeah. it it's up. useful <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we know what you're talking about <laughs> so i think that it's actually uh, quite good because like I, I'm I'm a little bit worried that like once you enter a uh, real job or like postdoc and like real academic career, like you will have different troubles and like you won't have time for like exploring like your field as you have as you have on a PhD. So I think that's actually and you are also like somewhat unbiased by like too much of knowledge. Or maybe I'm just talking from my own perspective because <laughs> I don't know, don't know much. But it seems to me that like more you know, like um, harder for you it is to do things that are that have like very little chance to to succeed. 
And I think that those uh, things are important to try when you're on a PhD. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's great. Thanks. Um, and our second tradition is playing, requesting a song, and we'll play it. So what is the song that you requested? So I requested uh, the Death South, a Canadian, I guess, bluegrass band. Cool. And yeah, it's called In That I'll Be In Good Company. All right. Thank and you. Yeah. yeah Thanks for coming is. on the show. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible. The show was started by Gian Convar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Paget Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsyth, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steyerwalt. To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And finally... Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination. Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.